Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Nearly three weeks ago, just days before many Americans look toward a holiday break, the federal government went into a partial shutdown. Congress missed the deadline to pass a spending bill. At issue was President Trump's demand for $5.7 billion in funding for a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. Democrats, led by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, have said they won't provide it. Trump has said he won't sign a spending bill without it. And they've so far failed to find a way to work together to reopen the government. The latest talks on Wednesday of this week collapsed as Trump called the meeting a total waste of time. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer told reporters that the president threw another temper tantrum, slammed the table, and walked out. The stalled negotiations have led the president to suggest another idea for how to get funding for his wall. And as he headed to the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas to continue his campaign for wall funding, he repeated that other idea to reporters. I have the absolute right to declare a national emergency. The lawyers have so advised me. I'm not prepared to do that yet, but if I have to, I will. I have no doubt about it, I will. This is Can He Do That? a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. President Trump has now repeatedly suggested that he will declare a national emergency over what he calls a crisis at the border in order to get funding for his signature campaign promise. But is there a crisis worthy of an emergency declaration? Can a president choose to invoke emergency powers whenever he wants? And in this case, will declaring a national emergency even get him that wall? To start to answer these questions, I turned to an assumption. Certainly, there must be criteria or circumstances required for a president to declare an emergency. Well, that's just the thing. There are no criteria in the National Emergencies Act, no requirements that have to be met, no showing that needs to be made. That's Liza Gotine of the Brennan Center for Justice. She oversaw the center's recent study about the vast and lesser-known powers granted to a president when he declares a national emergency. All the president has to do is to issue a declaration, sign his name to the declaration, state that there is a national emergency in effect, And then that gives him access to the special powers that are contained in more than 100 different provisions of law that have been enacted over the last several decades. But does he need a justification in that declaration for why he considers it a state of emergency? Not at all. How in the world did American democracy end up with a system that potentially gives such unilateral power to the president? It turns out it can be traced to 1976, when Congress passed the National Emergencies Act. 
Congress passed this law as an effort to try to actually increase congressional oversight and supervision of the president's use of emergency powers. So presidents were already declaring national emergencies and making use of various statutes that said that the president could do certain things in national emergencies. But there was very little structure to the process and very little congressional involvement. In the post-Watergate era, Congress thought the law would limit the dangers of sweeping executive power by increasing congressional oversight. It didn't exactly work out that way. The Congress made a choice when it passed that law not to put any limitations on the president's ability to declare a national emergency in the first instance. Why would they do that? I think they thought that oversight and accountability and reporting would be sufficient. And I think that's a mistake that Congress often makes, actually, when the executive branch is overreaching or when Congress is worried about overreaching. Congress thinks that if it just requires a few more reports and, you know, a few hearings, that that's going to do the trick. The truth of the matter is that the substantive provisions of law are what bind the executive branch. And if those provisions are too broad or too permissive, you know, all the oversight and accountability in the world is not really going to solve that problem. It turns out that that miscalculation by Congress, the belief that oversight would be a sufficient way to set limits on presidential power in national emergencies, has had some pretty big consequences. For decades since the National Emergencies Act, Congress has authorized 136 emergency powers. 96 of those powers can be activated by the president alone. There's a huge range, really, and and they address almost every possible area of government that you can think of. They include things like controlling agricultural exports, changing the wage rate requirements for public contracts, controlling domestic transportation. There's really an enormous range. And really, some of these, these laws involve narrow, common sense responses to uh, foreseeable crises. So, for example, there's a law that allows basically the experimental use of, of drugs or other medical interventions without FDA approval in the case of a public health emergency, a crisis, like a fast-moving pandemic where there's simply no time to, to go through the process of getting FDA approval. And you can see situations in which something like that would be necessary. And it's also hard to see how a provision like that would be a used. But then some of the other provisions are much broader and really give the president tremendous license to do things that it's tricky to see how they how they could help matters rather than making them worse. So Right. So for my understanding for somebody who's not a lawyer, if you even if the national emergency at hand, let's say, isn't a public health emergency, he still can use those public health that this provision that's related to public health to meet the needs of his emergency. Is it like no matter what the emergency is, you get access to all of these provisions? Uh, It depends on the provisions. Some of the provisions actually do require uh, more of a connection. They they require that certain, you know, findings be made or that certain conditions exist, but most of them don't. So there are literally dozens of laws that the president can access no matter what the nature of the emergency and no matter whether there is any fit between the law he's invoking and the crisis at hand. So from my understanding... We are currently in several state of emergencies, right? Like it's not there. These are ongoing. They haven't ended. There are some that began under George W. Bush at, in 9-11. Trump has issued, I think, two since he's been president. So three. how three. So how are these ongoing? What, what does it actually mean to be in a state of emergency? Do they end? What does that look like? 
A state of emergency can last for a year uh, under the National Emergencies Act, but then the president can renew it. And renewing it is no harder than issuing it in the first instance. It just requires the president's signature on a piece of paper, and then it lasts for another year. And that can go on year after year after year, and that's exactly what tends to happen. So the 9-11 emergency is not the oldest state of emergency that we're in. We are still in a state of emergency over the Iran hostage crisis from 1979. And there are several other uh, states of emergency that are still in place that are older than the 9-11 state of emergency. The average length of these states of emergency over the last 40 years has been about 10 years. Okay. And are those states of emergency being leveraged in some way that we don't see? I think the answer is yes. Under the National Emergencies Act, the president is supposed to report to Congress every six months on basically his expenditures during the state of emergency. Um, And you can actually find those reports uh, going up to about, I think, 2003. You can find those reports online. Uh, You cannot find those reports publicly uh, since, since then. They, they might be being filed, uh, but uh, it, it's you, I have not been able to get a hold of them. Let me just, let me just put it that way. And so uh, what's being done under the 9-11 state of emergency, for example, uh, we have some indications. There's some public reporting. We know that it was used right after 9-11 to implement uh, stop loss and to call up reservists. It was then misused during the Iraq war to do the same thing, uh, even though the Iraq war had nothing to do with 9-11. And the president has to state in the declaration of emergency the particular statutory authorities he's using. So that gives us at least a general sense of what's being done. But the specifics, there's not enough transparency in terms of of what's happening under these emergencies. So have presidents typically kind of self-regulated on the use of these powers, or have we seen presidents abuse the powers that they're granted in states of emergency? For the most part, there has been in my view, a surprising amount of self-regulation. More than two-thirds of these powers appear to have never been invoked, or at least not since the National Emergencies Act was passed. So that, to me, suggests you know quite a bit of, of self-regulation. On the other hand, we have seen some misuses. And the examples I would give are President George W. Bush relying on the 9-11 state of emergency to uh, free up his use of the military in Iraq. President Trump also relied on the 9-11 state of emergency last year when he invoked a law to fill a chronic shortage of Air Force pilots. So that was, I think, a misuse. Both Presidents Obama and Trump invoked non-existent economic crises in order to adjust the statutory pay raise for federal employees. Um, so we, we've we seen misuses. Can the president declare a national emergency under the current circumstances? Is there enough of a, a justification for declaring an emergency? Well, the definition of an emergency should be that there are unforeseen and unforeseeable circumstances that are very different from the norm, and that require immediate intervention at a speed that is that only the the president can accomplish, that Congress can accomplish. That there's essentially no no time for Congress to fulfill its usual role here. The legal question that the courts would look at is more complicated, as as legal questions often are. And in this case, it's really compounded by the fact that Congress chose to really place no limits on the president's ability to declare a national emergency. And if he does declare a national emergency, is it within his authority to then go ahead and start building the wall? 
what he can do is access specific provisions contained in these various different laws, but he has to stay within those provisions. So the question is, do any of those laws address the situation here? Do they give him authority to to engage in this project that has not been authorized or funded by Congress? There are a couple of laws that have been floated that allow the Secretary of Defense to basically move money around. I would say that neither of those laws is a perfect match, and they are both open to legal challenge. Ultimately, that's probably where the legal fight will be in the courts, even though really what the fight should be is Does the president get to declare a national emergency to get around the will of Congress? Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Declaring a national emergency may be a route to a border wall for Trump, but it's likely to be a complicated and difficult legal and political battle. So why then would the president be willing to take up this fight? Why would he be willing to take such controversial action to deliver on his signature campaign promise? The reason the president's looking at a national emergency is he feels like that's the only way to act unilaterally. That's Philip Rucker, the White House bureau chief here at The Washington Post. He laid out for me the details of the standoff between the president and the Democrats. He is demanding $5.7 billion. He doesn't want to come down from that. And Democrats not only are not willing to come to $5.7 billion, but think the wall is so immoral and so unnecessary, they don't even want to come to $3 million or $2 million. Uh, they just don't want this wall. And so Trump wants to take it into his own hands and do this national emergency. That will invite a huge firestorm politically, certainly, but also legally. I mean, it's dubious. It's not clear whether that's even allowed under the law. And the White House would have to defend this in court, probably. And, And, you know, a lot of experts think they would not have a very strong case. But nonetheless, it's a fight that Trump seems eager to have. So what do we know about how Trump's base is reacting to Trump's, like, unrelenting pursuit of the wall? Well, uh, it's a good question. We've not actually seen a lot of clear, conclusive evidence about it. There's been very limited polling in the last couple of weeks. So I, I would hesitate to say the White House seems to believe that the conservative base, that these voters are very encouraged and emboldened by what Trump is doing. But it's a different kind of issue than we've seen in the past where Trump has waged a battle for the base. Remember the Supreme Court confirmation hearings and that whole process with Brett Kavanaugh last fall? That was such an emotionally charged issue. There were protests and counter protests and demonstrations, and there was a very sort of visceral, visual expression from Trump's base of support for Kavanaugh. And we've not seen that with the wall. We don't, for example, see these protests taking form around the country of demanding the wall and saying we've got Trump's back. Trump's also not on the campaign trail. He's not doing rallies there. There haven't been visual manifestations of support. And what's particularly interesting about this to me, as it compares to, for example, that Brett Kavanaugh fight, is that there's something that's being lost in the interim here, right? So basic government services for people 
people who are affected by the outcome of the shutdown, people aren't getting paid. So it's one thing to fight for a conservative Supreme Court justice or to fight for a wall when it comes at little to no cost to you personally. But when you actually can feel the effects of the cost, perhaps the calculation is is different. Do, would, would that seem likely? I think so. And in terms of feeling the effects of the cost, we're three weeks into the shutdown now. The longer this goes on, the more regular Americans are going to start to really feel it. At first, there was a feeling, oh, the federal workers are going to get paid. So many of them are deemed essential and are still coming into work. Not a big deal. Well, now it is a really big deal. We're at the point where people's paychecks are being affected. We're at the point where national parks are not being cleaned up and taken care of, and there aren't enough rangers to literally keep people safe. And and you're seeing more and more problems. Food stamps could be a problem. You're seeing people who benefit from uh, housing and urban development grants or sort of loan arrangements with their rent who are, are in jeopardy with their housing. And so there are a lot of problems, and that'll just build in the weeks to come if this continues. And yet the administration's calculation is that that is worthwhile in the name of the, the wall. Correct. Uh, the, you know, it's the president's firm belief that he has to have this wall, uh, that his presidency is doomed from a political standpoint if he doesn't fulfill this promise and and build this wall. He also, of course, argues that it's in the name of national security and that, that what they deem a, a humanitarian and security crisis at the southern border could be solved by the wall. But setting that aside, the president views it as a political fight that he has to have, that his core supporters demand that he has. And the impacts of the shutdown, he's not terribly concerned about. And in fact, he's trying to sort of spin his own reality about the impacts of the shutdown. He said that many federal workers support uh, shutting down the government and support what he's trying to do with the wall. And there is simply no evidence of that. And, And in fact, the labor unions that represent tens of thousands of federal workers say that is not at all the case, that they oppose the shutdown and it is having great hardship uh, on these families. Now, Is there a world in which Democrats can agree to this $5.7 billion appropriated by Congress for a wall, but then kind of moderate it as time goes on to not necessarily be for a wall specifically, but to apply to border security? Like, is there a way to immediately stop the shutdown by agreeing to this amount of money, but kind of modulate how it gets applied as time goes on? I mean, potentially that could happen, but the Democrats are are really not going to be willing to agree to anything that could be used to construct the wall. They have just a firm core belief that this wall should not be built, will not solve the problem of illegal immigration, and is an, an amoral thing for the United States to do, that we're not a country that walls people out. So I, I just don't see where they're going to be willing to compromise. So Trump addressed the nation on Tuesday night, and he traveled to the border in Texas on Thursday. And he's been criticized for using these as tools of a PR campaign. But is there another lens where this is really just a common practice of how presidents communicate to the public? It's a good question. It certainly is common practice for a president to use his bully pulpit and the the public platform that he has to communicate with the American people to advance a policy agenda. What Trump's doing, though, is not typical. He is using the presidential bully pulpit to create a sense of crisis and urgency when immigration experts say one does not exist. There, There have always been troubles at the border with Mexico, as there are at every other port of entry in our country. 
country. But what the administration is doing is trying to whip up a sense of fear. And we saw Trump in his speech Tuesday night talk about death and destruction and rape and people being beheaded and dismembered by illegal immigrants. And, you know, yes, some of those things have happened, but horrible things happen everywhere. And it's not the the experts that we talk to say that uh, there's nothing particularly out of the ordinary right now um, about these sorts of crimes coming over the border to justify uh, what the president is, is calling a crisis. There's a consensus in, in the expert community that the president is trying to manufacture a crisis by exaggerating these anecdotes, by exaggerating statistics. For example, the White House has been saying that there have been nearly 4,000 terrorists or suspected terrorists who've crossed into the United States. And and they say it in a way that makes you think these are all people crossing over at the border with Mexico. That is not at all the case. That's a bogus statistic. Those are people coming in through many ports of entry. And in fact, the government statistics show that the vast majority of those known or suspected terrorists are coming in through airports, uh, not through the border with Mexico. So there's a sense to create urgency, to create a crisis. It could potentially be, frankly, to build a predicate and, and lay a foundation for declaring a national emergency. You know, clearly they want the crisis atmosphere. So on that note, what are the likely outcomes here? We have the possibility of a national emergency declared by Trump. What what else could possibly happen? You know, uh, a few outcomes. That is one outcome, certainly. Another could be some movement initiated by Congress. What the Democrats are starting to do in the House this week is pass a series of piecemeal appropriations bills to fund specific agencies to try to get them reopened. And if you start to see a break where Republicans start voting for those bills and supporting the Democratic moves, then you could pretty quickly see a scenario where enough Republicans say, you know what, we've had enough. The government's been shut down too long. Uh, Now we're not going to stand with the president anymore. We're going to go ahead and and, and vote for a clean appropriations bill that would reopen the government and table this debate on, on the wall and immigration for a later date. Uh, that's one outcome. Another outcome, obviously, is you know maybe the Democrats agree with Trump on the wall funding and, and they do a bill signing ceremony in the, in the Oval Office. I think that is 99.999% unlikely mm-hmm. uh, to happen for all the reasons that we've discussed already. But the White House is looking for an off-ramp. Uh, they don't have one in sight right now. And for, for Trump, according to our reporting, uh, the most tantalizing option seems to be the national emergency, which would let him uh, act unilaterally as the executive, as the commander in chief. OK, so my last question to you, and it's, it's sort of an unfortunate framing because real American lives are being affected. But is there a politically speaking, is there a winner that can emerge here? You know, <laughs> it, it, it. I hate to think of these things as winners and losers, but uh, there ultimately will be a judgment by the American people about um, who, you know, which party has governed through this crisis uh, more effectively. Trump is trying to be that winner. He thinks getting anything for the wall is a win with his base, and that's really what he cares about, his base. He also thinks, um, you know, waging a battle, a fight for the wall, even if he's unsuccessful, could make him a winner with his base because it'll show resolve and that he's, he's standing up to the opposition. But, you know, politics is about so much more than just your base. And uh, there's a, a, a big middle out there in the country of people who I, I imagine are pretty disgusted by both how the president is handling this and perhaps by how the uh, the Democratic leaders are as well. And I don't know if anybody can be a winner uh, in the eyes of those people. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Can He Do That? As always, if you liked this episode, please share it or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Carol Alderman with special help this week from Dennis Funk, design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.